hello. Welcome back. Welcome. Today, we are going to be talking about Memento Mori and death <laughs> in the Middle Ages. Oh my goodness. Ooh. It's, it's going to be fun. Tis, tis the season to be <laughs> morbid. Like, and it's especially the year. <laughs> yeah. We'll keep this lighthearted, like a positive morbid, rather and macabre, rather than like a just continue to bring you down. Yeah, in this 2020 trash fire of a year that we've been in. <laughs> Woo! Woo! So for those of you who don't know, I'm Megan. And I'm Ello. This is not a medieval the podcast. Last week we kind of did it ended up not being that short of an episode, but we did a little air quotes prequel to this week on images of death in the Middle Ages. And we talked about frogs in Gr- Brothers Grimm fairy tale and like the frog prince, frog princess, and then Disney's princess and the frog. And we did a little bit of more of like a history lesson on New Orleans and cuisine and that and kind of did more of a movie review than anything. <laughs> but I've had lots of fun, to be honest. No, I had a lot of fun too. And it was actually a fun one to – both of the episodes were fun to edit last week. Mm-hmm. And um, quick side note. So I think you saw, Elo, that I titled our episode with Amelia, The Legend of the Song Was Way Bardcore. Yeah. No one got the reference that I was making. Like, no one. And at the end, when I sing the little song, so this is like in reference to School of Rock and the legend of the rent was way hardcore. Oh my God. I don't think I got that until now. (laughs) Jack Black. I think I only put it on the Twitter where like linked to that scene in the movie. And I was just shocked because I feel like I kind of referenced that scene a lot and just it was crickets on everyone's behalf. And when I was talking to my dad, he was like, sometimes you can just be a little bit too, like, cheeky and cute for your own good. <laughs> I was like, well, at least he got it. He, I had to explain it to him. He didn't get oh. it. And I was just oh. shocked because everyone, I feel, has seen School of Rock. And if you haven't, watch that film because it is just so good. Problematic. Like, for sure. Like, just the overall story. But it's so good. Like, you just don't care. Yeah. Although, again, good question to ask is, do you think that if you were to watch it now for the first time, you'd have that response to it? Or whether it's because you've watched it when you were younger and have that nostalgic remembrance? Well, when I was going to California uh, back in January to pick up my cat, you know, and bring him from California to the UK, School of Rock was one of the films on the plane, and I hadn't seen it in at least five or six years, so kind of had forgotten the film. So I was kind of watching it with new mm. eyes, and I still really enjoyed it. I was like, okay, this teacher, Jack Black's character, like what he's doing is messed up, and the parents are fair to respond, but the parents are also kind of like really strict and slightly horrible and if you just kind of put all that aside and just enjoy the ride that is the film and the music in it, it's still a good film. It's well, so great. That's my argument for it. Agree to disagree. I'm right, but we can still agree <laughs> to disagree. <laughs> this, is such, this is really the problem about agreeing to disagree, right? It's like 
but actually haven't come to any kind of conclusion and like the two parties are set in their ways and so basically you could have not had the conversation it could just could have stayed the same I mean I bet it's still a little tainted by nostalgia but I've also talked to people who have seen it for the first time within the past few years and still enjoyed it like it's just kind of one of those films where you have a good time despite the flaws I find so anyways for a little bit of like the reference to that if you were like wow this is a weird title that's the that's the reference but um so we talked about like why we talked about frogs and toads last week mm-hmm. a bit and um so to i guess today we'll start off with that a little bit more as like a segue so we said that you know frogs toads worms and snakes were um images that accompanied images of death or a corpse to make people contemplate their own mortality. So that's like what a memento mori is. It's like a recollection of death or a remembrance of death. It's meant to remind you that you will one day die. Yes. So the perhaps the most famous version of this is in Shakespeare's Hamlet, when our tragic hero Hamlet is walking and comes across the recently dug up bones of the old court jester Yorick. And this is the famous scene where he holds the skull and he starts the monologue, to be or not to be, that is the question. So that's like a memento mori. So when yeah. you go to the gallery and see images of people and there's like a skull on mm. the, the desk or something, it's meant to be like a contemplation of death. Yeah. I mean, also the very famous case of uh, the very famous painting by Holbin, Mm-hmm. The ambassadors from in 1533, where you have these two worldly ambassadors. It's it's at the National Gallery, so mm-hmm. in London. So if if anyone has a chance of going there now or in the near future or at some point in the future or anyway even the internet, you can see it. And on the side, you have these two worldly ambassadors with all of the wor- worldly goods, and then to the side you see the skull that's kind of put in a perpendicular angle it's called like parallaxis or something like that yeah Um, it's really really interesting yeah it's meant to be a play on like perspective Mm. and I always thought that the skull on the ground looked like a weird I mean this is centuries before you know CGI or photoshop but it looks like it it was put in does right that way and it's trippy how when you move to the right angle, how it just, you're like, how was this not like that when I was standing two inches to the left? Because no, it just looks like it belongs there. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's called anam- anamorphosis. And it, yes, that's right, anamorphosis. So like anamorph, like an object that shifts. Yeah. Um, it's really interesting. And it's also, so when, when I did my undergrad, mm-hmm. we did a whole lot of poetry on memento mores because i did 15th 16th century french literature which Mm -hmm. by the way i found not my thing (laughs) (laughs) it wasn't for me but looking back on it there's quite a few things that are very like modern medieval about it Mm -hmm. and quite a few poems about roses and you know how like the beauty of a woman is ephemeral and what is ephemeral and you know, what does that mean in terms of life? And it was very, it's so interesting how you, you can think about death for a little while and grasp it. 
or you can spend your whole life trying to talk about it and not understand it. Yeah. I mean, that's its greatest appeal, though, is that it's that unknowable and ungraspable. As you said in your um, your dissertation, this, like it's the ineffable. And I know you were talking about heaven in regard to that, but it's, <laughs> <laughs> it is that. <laughs> you probably hate me, uh... but... <laughs> Well, in all fairness, I do think that the ineffable is like the concept that you can probably say the most about and actually say nothing about. Yeah. <laughs> like my dissertation. <laughs> um, so even though this is, you know, an ungraspable and an ineffable idea, there are tropes, symbols, images that are returned to again and again. And a lot of these were established in the Middle Ages. There are, of course, those from the Byzantine, from the classical period, and earlier, you know, uh, the pre-contemporary era, prehistoric, etc. But today we're talking about the medieval ones. <laughs> I feel um, like you could probably write, write 10 books on this. Yeah, I mean, there's probably hundreds, if not thousands of books already written on all of yeah, this. that's true. But, um, <laughs> so, yeah, Toads and frogs, worms and snakes. And so initially why these were used, uh, last episode I was saying because they're like on the ground and kind of dirty and squirmy, and there is a truth to that. But also because in the Middle Ages, people thought that these were creatures that uh, feasted on dead bodies, on corpses. and they didn't have rats. Yeah, I guess maybe rats were just so common because they were like in houses because um, they are vermin, maybe they didn't think of them that way. Yeah. I'm not really sure. That's something to look into. Um, but so these feasting creatures are, you know, famous on lots of different images, one of which is on, on a woman at a cathedral in Worms, Germany, or Worms. I never know how to pronounce that properly. It's literally spelt Worms, so irony. I don't know how to pronounce German words, oh. so I can't help you. But uh, she, from the front, you know, looks very beautiful and luxurious. The folds in her gown, there's a crown sitting on her head. And there's like a tiny little knight that clings to the hem of her dress, which is kind of funny. He's kind of like, hello. Hello. Love me. Hello. <laughs> he gazes at her adoringly and longingly. And she's not even like paying attention to him. But <laughs> if you turn to look at her back... She's covered in frogs and worms. And according to Atlas Obscura, which is where I initially came across this, this woman, she's Miss World or Frau Welt. Mm. And um, so, yeah, the back of her, she's covered in toads. And this is actually a biblical reference to Revelation uh, sixteen thirteen, And the mm. quote is, and I saw three unclean spirits, like frogs, come out of the mouth of the dragon, and out of the mouth of the beast, and out of the mouth of the false prophet. And so that's why her body's being eaten alive by snakes and worms, because she's an Ooh. allegory for vanity, a symbol for all that's evil and sinful in the world, hidden behind a seductive facade. And in Germany, she was a favorite character for morality plays and morality songs and fables. And, there, and sermons around uh, 1300. So this is also around when the cathedral was constructed. But I just found that really interesting. And further on this, so continuing with like 
frogs and toads. Because today we just are like, some people don't like them because they're slimy or loud or whatnot. But especially toads in the Middle Ages were seen as cannibalistic and like eating humans. Yeah. So uh, there's two stories of like man eating and poisonous toads that I came across. So the first one is narrated by Gerald of Wales in the 12th Mm -hmm. century. And so he tells lots of different tales to get people to volunteer for the Crusades. But one of his tales is of a man who is plagued by toads. No way. Yeah. So just the toads would flock to this fella and just nibble at his flesh. Just just like take a bite, you know. (laughs) This man is just terrified of being eaten alive by these toads. And so he is told by friends, like, well, why don't you just climb to the top of this tree? Toads can't get to the top of trees. Unfortunately for this fella, (laughs) these toads are also arboreal, so they can, like, climb the tree. Oh, my God. (laughs) So they climb up to the tree, and now that he's trapped, they eagerly approach him on his branch and snack upon him, leaving only a skeleton clinging to the limb of the tree. So they (laughs) they eat him clean. (laughs) Um, So that's from... Gerald of Wales's uh, journey through Wales, and then aside from this, like carnivorous toad, do you do you think there's a bit of imagery of suicide in that? Possibly, I think we'd have to go to the actual source text to see, rather than just a summary, like in the way that the man, because mm. he went up the tree because his friends said that the toads can't climb trees, so it's different than if he knew that he could. Yeah. Right. Yes. Yeah. Sorry. But possibly, I don't know. Yeah, something it's just to look somehow into. it came to mind. Yeah, no, I mean, I, I guess know, for some reason. That. I mean, this is very bleak. But um, when I was in Japan, you know how there's one part of um, in forests that are known that like you shouldn't go there because there's tons of people who've committed suicide. Oh yeah, and, there was a film police, about that recently. Yeah, and the police doesn't even go in there, and so for some reason that kind of brought to mind that imagery to me. Hmm, very very dark sorry we were we promised to keep this light <laughs> going back <laughs> going back to venomous toads um not carnivorous <laughs> lightening the tone just a little bit um so there were lots of texts about venomous toads so one is in the peterborough chronicle which is a version of the anglo-saxon chronicle um continued later into the century and mm. so in this chronicle the peterborough chronicle it takes us inside the dungeons of malefactors who, because the king's weak, have been incarcerating innocents to take away their money. So, yay, that's a bit of the, like, you know, barbaric medieval, if you yeah. will. And so, amongst these people, death by toad venom ranks right up there with being suspended by your thumbs and having your brains forced out through your ears. So, the entry is, the quote is, No martyrs were ever tortured as these victims were. They were hung by their thumbs or by their head, and corselets were hung on their feet. Knotted ropes were put round their heads and twisted till they penetrated to the brains. They put them in prisons where there were adders and snakes and toads and killed them like that. You know, fun. And then there's one other one about toads that I want to share. It's quite similar. 
And it comes from Thomas Amonmouth's Life of St. William of Norwich. Mm. And so yet again, we're in a dungeon because if we're thinking of venomous toads in this lens, they are usually going to be used in some sort of like torture or punishment rather than like venomous toad biting the peasant in the field. Mm. Because I don't think toads are generally venomous. I think the only ones that are known are like in South America, like the poison dart frog. That's a frog. Yeah. I'm not a biologist, though. I'm not either. I have a feeling that there were more. There probably are. But I don't know if they're, like, in Europe. I feel like that would be something. Perhaps. Yeah, maybe they were all, like, eradicated. But this is um, a little excerpt from The Life of St. William of Norwich, where it says, There was, then, a woman of Brandney named Wimark? Weimark? (laughs) I don't know. It's... W I M A R C. Who knows? (laughs) (laughs) So, uh, W, who in the time of Stephen, when the days were evil, was given as a hostage at Gainsborough for her husband who had been taken by pirates. In his stead, she was committed to prison with three other women and one man. And there she remained for a long time. These people, after long enduring miserably cold, hunger, stench, and attacks of toads, began to plan in concert the death of their gowler. So, surrounded by these toads and their attacks, the prisoners squeeze venom from some of these threatening but oddly handy amphibians and then mix that into the gowler's drink. However, the gowler suspects treachery and he forces them to drink the drink instead. And so all but Vimark perish from toad poisoning. Oh, my <laughs> um, God. I wonder if that's why mushrooms are called toadstools. Those are poisonous oh. ones, like the Mario ones. Sorry, that was a random... Oh, that's actually impossible. ...connection. Um, not part of this story. We can return to that. <laughs> so, <laughs> uh, why Mark's flesh swells grotesquely. Her skin nearly tears open. She's finally released from prison, and for seven years, Weimark is possessed of the body, not of human being, but of, quote, some portentous new monster, end quote. So she's wandering the world in this swollen, nearly bursting form. However, there is a happy ending to this story in that after a pilgrimage to St. William's Shrine in Norwich, Uh, She is cured, for she vomits the toad's venom over the pavement in front of the shrine, where, quote, there was enough of it to fill a vessel of the largest size, and she is restored to her slender figure. Well, (laughs) there's some toad lore for (laughs) you. The boons. So, yes, that's why toads especially, and, of course, snakes are, you know, venomous. They're known for that. Frogs. They're the cousins, brothers, whatever, of toads. So I could see that, you know, being related. And then worms do, they live in the ground. They do technically eat on corpses because they're like maggots and other squiggly, crawly, creepy crawlies. Ooh. I find that a bit gross. I mean, I know it's gross, so it's not like I I find it gross. I mean, as if I'm the authority on this, but (laughs) it's 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 a strange thing to think about. Yeah. You know, what what happens to your body once you've left it? Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, I've gotten really into looking at like mortuary studies and, you know, on my grave walks, contemplating that. And it is really 
curious. And I was looking into safety coffins yesterday because a podcast that I listened to, Buffering the Vampire Slayer, it kind of came up briefly in their episode where they were talking about a character that was like, they should have buried them with like a shovel and a trowel so they could dig themselves out of their grave. And I, my brain went like, oh yeah, that's like in the Victorian era when lots of people were buried with like bells attached to the corpses so that um, if the person was actually buried alive, they could ring the bell. <laughs> and there was this whole phenomena of different ways, you know, like trap doors ways to get fresh air in, food tubes, air tubes. It was like a whole thing in the 17th, 18th, and 19th centuries. However, the bell, you know, attempt wasn't the best because the body, depending on when it's buried, um, tends to bloat and expand, and there's lots of gases released. So there would be false alarms with the bells ringing because – the body bloating is pulling the strings taut and making the bell chime. So I'm not really sure how long that lasts. But security coffins are still being made today. There's one now that has like a electric button you can push if you're buried alive and it'll send a beacon out. I think it's kind of amazing, really. Yeah, I mean, there, a lot of people have the fear of being buried alive, which is tophophobia. Though today, usually you have to go to a mortician and they, you know, do things to your body to like embalm it. So usually if you're not quite dead, it's caught. I mean, there was just that woman about a month ago that woke up at the mortuary because they, the, even like the medical professionals, like were like, she didn't have a pulse. She wasn't breathing because she was in such a deep, like catatonic state and then, yeah, poor, bless her soul, she woke up in the morgue. Oh, my God, that's scary. Um, but it doesn't that really happen would, like, that, that much That would be now. really traumatizing. Oh, yeah, 100%. I mean, it happens a lot in movies, people being buried alive, either intentionally or unintentionally. Yeah. But, yeah. That's so scary. this kind of links to <laughs> – <laughs> I'm trying to keep us – fairly you know I'm sorry I'm having I don't know if anyone else has this but like sometimes I when I think about death too much I can envision things and then I'm like oh my god and it kind of like (laughs) it puts me in a state of panic I like I feel very very real and like very like fleshy which is very strange because obviously you inhabit your body every other day (laughs) every other instant but I feel much more like connected to it so I find it I always just get like unsettling or like surreal. yeah 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 so I get like a bit yeah very quiet I'm sorry <laughs> no it's okay uh sorry I'm like the opposite when it comes to thinking about death but I get what you're saying it's like when you can hear your heartbeat when you lay on the pillow a certain way that always freaks me out because I'm always waiting mm. for it to just stop <laughs> and it like <laughs> totally psychs me out well so, but the thing is if that were to happen you wouldn't really realize <laughs> well you would have a few seconds you know to go like oh shit and then die <laughs> so, <laughs> um oh you know it's such a shame that we don't know what people think the, the, what their last thought is yeah I think it's better that way to be quite fair you can always just <laughs> kind of project something happy and positive rather than like yeah, okay. oh like or whatever it is um so another kind of popular trend in the middle that we're talking about uh high to late middle ages is um known as 
cadaver tombs or corpse tombs, right. also transit tombs. So these are tombs that show either just the decaying body rather than like a, you know, idyllic, exalted version of the body or one that has both of those images. So usually rather than just a skeleton, you'll find the corpse in different states of decay, you know, the bones sticking out through the flesh, the face looking super mummified. And I love these kind of tombs. I think that they're just like bizarre and fun. One that you can find really easily on Google, it's like the most popular one that you find, is of John Fitzalan, Earl of Arundel at the Arundel Castle Chapel. And Arundel is A-R-U-N-D-E-L, not Arundel, like from Lord of the Rings, different, mm. different thing. Yeah, like there's a cadaver withering away, and then there's like a nice gothic kind of structure that then creates a table that the uh, like nice figure is lying on top. And then, Elo, I bet you probably are aware of this in a way. One of the most famous kind of late medieval to early Renaissance, kind of that pivot time, is um, Masaccio's painting at the Santa Maria Novella in Florence, which is the fresco of the Trinity. Mm. And this is considered, if I recall correctly, from my like intro to art history years ago, one of, if not the first like successful perspective paintings where like all the lines draw up into the top. Mm. And it's like the introduction of kind of, because in the middle ages, that medieval art is often known for being much more flat and kind of 2D. Whereas, of course, when we think of the Renaissance, almost nothing is 2D at that time. Or there's this kind of weird in-between. And so this is one of those first paintings where you can actually see the perspective lines all going into the center of the image of God and Jesus on the cross. But the bottom of this fresco is a cadaver tomb. That's why I bring that up. Yeah. It's so interesting to think about how a lot of um, religious sites and like a lot of religious rituals they're mostly based around death and the importance of death Mm -hmm. as if like in a way kind of going back to like stoicism right Mm -hmm. the fact that we're so afraid of death means that we don't prepare for it in any way right and avoid it yeah when we were talking about this in one of our first episodes i think it was our rats and bats episode where in the middle ages i mean it was so, omnipresent. So omnipresent. I mean, if you think about it, they not only had, you know, the Black Death at, you know, different times throughout history, but a bunch of other diseases that we now have cures or Vaccine. other kind of vaccines for. So these are diseases such as polio, smallpox, typhoid, tuberculosis, influenza, malaria, measles, and syphilis. And those are just some of the treatable ones, let alone... I mean, also, there's probably some that they haven't rediscovered yet. (laughs) Yeah, let alone, you know, things like dysentery, which lasted until the early 20th century and still occasionally happens. Other viruses, parasites. So, yeah, death was kind of everywhere. So I think that they did have to confront it more. Buckle up a bit. (laughs) And so I think that's such one of the really kind of terrifying elements of the current moment that we're in is you know every day you're seeing the different stats of different countries and what their statistics are in regard to deaths you know like 
today there were 4,000 new cases and 2,000 new deaths on top of yesterday or whatever it yeah, may be. Yeah, however they calculate this. And obviously never it's never the same way. <laughs> they right. never were made in the same kind of analysis. Yeah, and what I mean also lots of margins for error and assumptions yeah. on numbers. But despite the horrors that we're in right now, and I think it'd be different, of course, if either of us were in the medical profession and at hospitals or something, but like we still aren't necessarily encountering death the way that you would in the middle ages. I think that would still be much more like in your face. And part of that's because the communities were smaller and just the way that it was like handled and just the visibility of it was different. Yeah, it's true. It's just, it's, for me, that's something that's really hard to kind of grasp and think about is the way that we think about and accept death and then just kind of historically perspectivizing it. That's not a word, but like thinking about it and how just inconceivably different it must be. And also, I know that at least in my American upbringing, Elo, I'm not so sure about yours, but like it, death's just not really around unless someone no like dies it's not a like i didn't grow up you know in a religious household that practiced um traditional death grievances you know where you like in the jewish faith often where you sit for i think it's like seven days with the dead body in the home or other parts of the world where the dead body is something that you engage with it's just kind of like oh the person died send them to the crematorium or, you know, the morgue. They'll either be cremated or go through the embalming process. And then you have, you know, your funeral and then it's over. And it's like still very distant, I find. Yeah, no, it's true. It's so strange when you do actually have a death (laughs) and you don't really know how to cope with it or deal with it or think about it. So, yeah, it's true. I, I think for myself personally, this moment has really made me think about that more, even just kind of offhand. And I think that's why I've been becoming more and more drawn to like mortuary sciences and like thanatology, you know, or the philosophy and theories of death, as well as of course my research for the medieval, but kind of thinking about all of that because I've personally been having to like consider and think about that. Like it's just, we have nothing but time. And that's just like what I've been thinking about. Fun stuff. Well, we have more kind of like lighthearted, I guess, like funny, but still like macabre and morbid. So we've got, you know, other images of death in the Middle Ages are like protesting humans and demons coming to take the bodies. And these are just always such fun images to look at. We're like, you know, someone's dying in bed and there's like a skeleton peeking its head through the door and it's kind of like, hey, I'm here. You know, and the person's like, don't forget me. No. (laughs) Or, you know, someone's getting like horrifically murdered. And there's like demons like holding their hands out for their blood. And they're like, yes. Oh, Um, so scary. I I find that like the imagery of demons just scarier than the actual thing. (laughs) I mean, some of them are really terrifying. Some of them are really funny, though. You have to admit, some of the, if you looked up like medieval demons, some of them are pretty. Yeah. dorky looking like <laughs> um but so those are some other images or kind of elements that you'll you'll see of the memento mori in the middle ages um oftentimes these are because of you know ideas of salvation 
where does your soul go? Does it go to heaven with the angels or down below with Satan? And the demons are usually there because they're trying to have a final attempt at convincing the human to do something wrong or to come with them and drag them down to hell. But finally, I think the most fun one is the dance macabre, which the dancing skeletons. So the dance macabre we've talked about is the dance of death. Yeah. And these are usually like smiling skeletons and like holding the hands of other skeletons or humans. And it's like, oh, yay. We're done. Death. And we've talked about this scene before, but the end of the seventh seal ends with the dance macabre scene. And that's like kind of the snapshot of the, the film is usually like either that scene or when death's playing chess on the beach. Those are kind of like the two moments I think that are the most identifiable, but yeah, dance macabre is so fun. I think that like Oingo Boingo has a song about that and <laughs> 80s like pop band that sings about skeletons and blood and vampires and werewolves and they're great. We should Maybe that should be the intro song. They're so much fun for this time of year. This is a shout out to Paola for like when she helped me move, but I was just blasting Oingo Boingo because they sing the song Weird Science. You know, mm. Weird Science. She was, did not know what was happening and I was so into it. <laughs> but a lot of the um, dance macabre images are like woodcuts. Yeah. The most famous collection of these woodcuts is Hans Holbein's woodcut series that actually came out in around 1538, the 1530s. Mm. But it's kind of one of those because of the imagery that's in it is associated more with the medieval than Renaissance yeah. time. So again, this is that kind of like blurring of what we consider, you know, nice historic era boxes. It's not yeah. so neat. But these are always really fun because... I feel like when you think of death in the Middle Ages, a lot of the dance macabre ones are those yeah. that people think of. Yeah. The dance macabre is like all across Europe, from Lithuania to Italy, England, France, Croatia, to say like Estonia, numerous, numerous others. Like that is an image that you will find everywhere. It's not just specifically French. It's not just that or just Italian. It's everywhere that was like yeah. a very common and it's an allegory for like the universality of death so usually these are kings and queens dancing with these skeletons so it's like no matter your station in life the dance macabre unites us all you're gonna die it's true uh, it's an undeniable fact yes exactly indeed so those were kind of the images i had were there any that you came across or thinking of no, none of nope. <laughs> no, no, actually, no. Um, you've said them all. But I mean, you know, it's interesting to think alongside the, what you've said because it's obviously very compelling. And it's also so different to how we think of things, which kind of, it gives it more of an attraction, makes you more attracted to it in this time of mm. year to think about it in these terms and what those traditions would have meant and also what that would have meant in terms of how you live and what you choose to do and how you think of the future. Everything's mm -hmm. determined by that. Yeah, no, definitely. And this will definitely be something that we piggyback on with next week. Next week. Because speaking of, you know, this time of year, so next week we have Halloween on Saturday. We have All Saints Day on the 1st and All Souls Day on the 2nd. 
we're really excited to tune into and like talk about those three different kind of holidays and celebrations. And with that, especially with something like Halloween, which, you know, definitely and most obviously, I guess you could argue, has its connections to Samhain and the Celtic tradition also has roots back to Egypt and everything. So that'll be quite, um, I think, fun to like explore because, you know, that's the spooky, morbid, you know, spirits coming to cross the veil into the living. But then All Souls and All Saints is like a complete a very big thing. Yeah. And it's a yeah. very big thing. Like, Elo, you sent me that link. So in Italy, it looks like it. I know that in Poland it is because I was in Poland for um, that, my first research trip. But in America, it's like not really a thing. I know in France, it's a thing because we celebrated yeah. it once in one of my French classes. So yeah, I'm really excited to like wait, wait, wait. learn more about that. Dust yeah. off those historic cobwebs and look at, you know, <laughs> what's going on. Yeah, next week's definitely going to be kind of, I think, like a uh, cadaver grave where we've got the spooky and the nice or something. I don't know. Um, I'm looking forward to it. Yeah, same. And if between now and then you have any comments, questions, suggestions, links, traditions, always, images. Always. Yeah, please send them our way. And on that note. Hello. You can find us. <laughs> you can find us on Spotify, Apple Podcast, Audible, and Amazon by typing Modern Medieval the Podcast. You can find us on social media where you're most likely to contact us on Instagram, podcast.modern.medieval. On Facebook, we've got a group and we've got a page. Um, by typing Modern Medieval the podcast. You can also, sorry, I forgot about this, you can listen to us on YouTube um, where Megan has spent many fruitful hours putting us on to the web. As always, I'm very thankful to Megan because she does all of the techie things. (laughs) Then there's the Twitter. Mm -hmm. Yes, there's the Twitter. And we've got an email. Oh, yes. So So our Twitter is at Medieval underscore modern, find us there. And then again, the good old fashioned email. And that is modern.medieval.podcast at gmail.com. And I think those are all our platforms. I'm pretty yeah. sure we cover them all. Yeah, I think we've done a pretty good job with the net. <laughs> yeah, I think we're like on Everything. enough platforms. Yeah. <laughs> Until next time, I'm Megan. And I'm Ello. And this and is Modern Medieval, the podcast. Yeah. Do, 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 do. Oh, otherwise. <laughs>